Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Susan Liotto, the founder and managing director of Susan Liotto and Associates Limited, a consultancy advising corporate, government, and nonprofit leaders on ethics matters, and the author of The Power of Ethics, How to Make Good Choices in a Complicated World. Dr. Leoto, how are you? Very well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's my privilege. I'm looking forward to this. So tell us about your background and your consulting practice. I started out as a corporate lawyer at the New York firm Sullivan and Cromwell, and I worked both in New York and, and Paris. And long story short, I then had to move to California and became an associate dean for international and graduate programs at Stanford Law School. But over time, I started to recognize the significant gap between what the law was able to address and the very, very important ethical questions that society was facing. The early days were kind of the early days of Apple and some of the big tech companies, the early days of derivative securities. That's when I started to see this gap between the law and the reality that was having such a big impact on society expand. And over time, I just focused increasingly on what I call cutting edge ethics questions or complex ethics questions. And and it can range from anything from tech ethics or ethics of AI to things like racism in the corporate world or sustainability or the sustainable development goals. So it's quite a broad range, and it's definitely a multi-stakeholder approach. Any organization that I'm working with is going to be dealing with organizations outside their sector, but that's sort of the the short evolution. What inspired you to write The Power of Ethics, How to Make Good Choices in a Complicated World? So the mission of most of my work today, whether it's board service or my nonprofit, The Ethics Incubator, or teaching at Stanford or the advisory work that you mentioned, is really democratizing ethics. And by that, I mean making ethical decision-making accessible to people from all walks of life and making it more of a habit than a burden, making it more of an opportunity than a roadblock. And so I started to realize in working particularly with large organizations that while my work with boards and senior management teams and CEOs very much, or for example, heads of law firms or heads of partnerships, they deal with a very specific kind of question. But in fact, for them to succeed in the ethics of their organization, everybody in the organization has to join in integrating ethics into their decision making. And so I wanted to write something that was accessible, that would leave the reader, even after the first chapter, with a framework for ethical decision making that is, in my case, four words. So it isn't even something that one has to work to remember. It literally becomes a habit after the first chapter. And then with an understanding of What are, at least in my view, and what I've seen in my work, the six most important forces that drive ethics today that we will find in any decision we're looking at, whether it's how to treat Uber drivers, or whether it's how to deal with compliance issues in a financial institution, or crypto, or racism, or sexual misconduct, or et cetera, any issue that we face will in one way or another involve these six issues. And so it gives the reader sort of a way to get their bearing without becoming a specialist in all of these different areas. 
What are some best practices for making good decisions? We need to understand that our decisions have an impact over time. So I'm always advising to look at the short, medium, and long term all at the time of the decision. And Ari, one of the problems we have today is that people think they're looking at the long term, but in fact, they're lo- they become sort of serial short-termists. And by that, I mean, you know, we'll make a decision with the next two weeks in mind. And then at that point, we'll look at the next two weeks and on and on, as opposed to looking today at what's happening today in two weeks and two months and two years, et cetera. So that's one thing. The second is to really define the decisions in terms of opportunities and risks. How can we maximize opportunity and how can we minimize risks? And what we are increasingly doing in today's world is squeezing everything into a binary decision situation. So black or white, in or out, like Brexit, yes or no. And in fact, today's most critical decisions are not, by and large, yes or no, ethical or unethical categorizations. They really involve how do we maximize opportunity or minimize risk or both. So for example, if we're looking at innovations, if we're looking at driverless cars, we want all the advantages that driverless cars can bring. Access to cars and independence for people who can't drive for various reasons, increased safety, potentially even environmental impact. But we also want to manage the risks. And so we need to look at both. And if we put things into yes or no buckets, or if we label things as ethical or unethical, we end up missing opportunity. And we also end up missing risk. And then I'll just name a couple more and and we can go further than that if you wish. The other is that we need to be mindful of the impact of our decisions on stakeholders. And I define stakeholders as anybody who can be affected by our decision. And the challenge in today's world is that there are stakeholders in our decisions whom we will never meet, maybe many who are not even in our generation. So if we take a case like editing genes, there was a case in China against all international ethical norms of editing the genes of embryos, the scientist Ho Jin Kui, I should say rogue scientist Ho Jin Kui. Well, that's going to have an impact on many subsequent generations. So we need to just be very broad thinking about our stakeholders. And then finally, I would really emphasize I'm on a personal campaign to eradicate perfectionism. And the reason for that is that it makes ethical resilience impossible. It makes it impossible for us to make mistakes, learn, recover, take responsibility, and make a plan to avoid mistakes in the future. But when we are too perfectionist, there are only three things that can happen. One is because it's impossible, people cheat to try to achieve it. So the it can be anything from impossible to reach sales targets to any other form of deliverable that, for example, a corporation might require, or even meeting certain sustainable development goals or things like that. The second is people will try and try and bang their heads against a wall. And that's where you get things like mental health epidemics with teenagers. So you see perfectionism on Instagram. You see people trying to meet impossible standards of beauty or impossible standards of success academically among young people. And that results in the mental health epidemics that we have. And door number three is that people just give up because they know it's impossible. So you get no effort out of people. That's what I would list as sort of my fourth. There there are other aspects, but just to give you a sense that these are concepts that people readily integrate into their decision habits. My way of working is not at all that one needs to take a three-month seminar and do 100 case studies. And only through that kind of a process will become effective ethical decision makers. 
You mentioned your war against perfectionism. In addition to making good choices, how can professionals overcome bad choices? We can't always overcome bad choices, first of all. Especially senior leaders in today's world are under enormous pressure. They're dealing in an environment of tremendous uncertainty, everything from COVID-19 to unexpected implications of artificial intelligence to climate pressure to political polarization. I mean, leaders today are under a huge amount of pressure. So the first thing is they will make bad decisions. The question is what happens when they do, how quickly they can recover, how agile are they, how willing are they to take responsibility and make a plan and move forward and model that for everybody else in the organization. But beyond that, there are a couple of things. One is be willing to press pause. And if we look, for example, at the social media companies, this rush to market, so to speak, of so many products, whether it's dating apps or whether it's, for that matter, some of the new things coming out of Facebook, and that's just by way of an example, it's not to to shine any particular light on Facebook, we should be willing to press pause. We don't urgently need the next dating app. We do urgently need COVID vaccines. We do urgently need cures for cancer. But particularly where consumer products are being launched on the public, we should be much more willing to press pause. Second is to really try to simplify the number of organizations I see where their compliance and apparatus and their communications around ethics matters. It's sort of way too many documents with way too many words and no sane human being could ever master sort of the ethics infrastructure of the organization. So people get little bits and pieces of things. They don't fully understand what is expected of them. And that's also sort of a recipe for disaster. And the third is arrogance. Very often, we think we know more than we actually do know or more than we actually can know. And listening to a wide variety of different voices is one of the best weapons against bad decisions. And I go back to one of my favorite books, which is Doris Kearns Goodwin's Team of Rivals, her biography of Abraham Lincoln. And it was many of the listeners may have seen it in the form of the Spielberg film rather about Lincoln, but surrounding ourselves with voices who are willing to challenge and voices who come with different perspectives is for, in my view, one of the most effective ethics weapons. How does a corporate government or nonprofit leader balance the advice from their general counsel or outside lawyers with your guidance on ethics? That is another great question. So in general, the law is critical to ethics. In general, I do not ever say don't respect the law. Now, there are very, very extreme situations, and I can give you examples if you're interested. But by and large, respecting the law is a foundation for ethics. But ethics goes above and beyond. So usually the question isn't between compliance with law versus ethics, It might be the additional ethics effort versus a little bit of profit or versus a delay in launching a product. So the classic example of that in all of the literature that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with is the Tylenol case, where the CEO of the company was told by the general counsel, we hear that there is some issue with Tylenol, a safety issue. We don't know what it is, but you should leave it on the shelves because otherwise you're going to create a panic and you might ultimately increase your legal liability. The CEO said, no way, I'm not taking a risk with safety. Remove the Tylenol from the shelves. A year later or so, the company started to recover. There was a hit to profits, 
But that would be an example where the CEO said, I'm going above and beyond the law. But it wasn't an example of breaking the law. It was an example of simply saying, I know I'm not required to take the Tylenol off the shelves, but I'm going to because that is a better ethical thing to do. And at the cost of a bit of hit to profit and maybe share price, but ultimately recovered incredibly well. And that is now the case study for this kind of thing. What type of work do you do with the Ethics Incubator? So the Ethics Incubator is a nonprofit, and it is a platform for discussion to look at how ethics links people from very, very different specialties and areas that we don't typically associate with ethics. It's, again, part of my mission of democratizing ethics. So for example, there's a whole series of interviews with artists like the architect Frank Geary, or there are, there are interviews with politicians. So for example, Senator Feingold or writers, Sir Salman Rushdie, but also Jonathan Rauch, who just wrote a wonderful book about free speech. So it's the idea is to say ethics is kind of everywhere in our lives. And when we work in organizations, we tend to think largely in terms of the organizational ethics, but we should look for inspiration and we should look at the challenges everywhere from the arts to literature and beyond. You are affiliated with Stanford University and the London School of Economics. What ethics-related challenges do you see your students facing as they address changing workplace dynamics? So students today are facing a couple of critical questions, and I should say that they are increasingly interested in the ethics of the organizations to which they apply for jobs. So they will look at things like sustainability. They will look at diversity and inclusion. They will look at a corporate record, for example, are there environmental issues? So it matters increasingly to them. That isn't to say that that is the only factor or even should be the only factor, but just to say generally that it matters. I think the issues that our students are facing first and foremost have to do with free speech. We're in an environment, this so-called cultural wars, things like cancel culture, things like what can we say on private social media when we work at a corporation? How much can our employer control what we do with social media on our private accounts? All manner of free speech questions are incredibly important. When do I speak up? When do I not express an opinion that might be controversial? What do I do if I have a more right-wing uh, political point of view, whereas many of the leading academic institutions are very liberal today? in a political sense. So free speech is kind of everywhere, including all of the issues around fake news, weaponizing disinformation and the like. So that's one whole big area. But as far as their job environments, the other area is technology. It's really, what are the ethics of AI? Am I gonna be working for an organization that is gonna be constantly in the news for major tech ethics failures, data privacy issues, creating addiction, having a negative impact on mental health. And they're asking themselves kind of, what is my own responsibility in that? Not just how do I use these things, but if I do I want to work in an environment where those issues are at play? This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Dr. Susan Leoto, the founder and managing director of Susan Leoto and Associates Limited, a consultancy advising corporate, government, and nonprofit leaders on ethics matters. She is also the author of The Power of Ethics, How to Make Good Choices in a Complicated World. Dr. Leoto, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you, Ari. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. 
Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.